nights when one drink with the girls turns into a bottle, but you need your car for brunch the next day. There's pickup. Or at Friday work drinks, where you don't want to leave your car with expensive tools at the pub. There's pickup. Don't miss out on the fun. Get a pickup. Simply book on our app and we'll pick you up to drive you and your car home. Two drivers arrive, one drives you home in your car, and the other driver follows. Download the Pickup app today. That's PKUP and wake up worry free. Hi, I'm Jack LeBrock. Hi, I'm David Reynolds. And you're listening to Inside Supercars. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. Welcome to Inside Supercars. Tony Whitlock and Craig Ravel, following my recent return from Tasmania. Craig, a wonderful time of seeing some live motor racing again. Been a while. In fact, Bathurst last year, of course. You watched on TV? Anything uh, surprising for you? Lee Holsworth, who won the first race, and whilst Jordan Cox won the first round, Lee Holsworth and Chas Mostert sit second and third in the championship after the first round and it'll be fascinating to see how the balance of performance which really hindered the Hondas will be changed over the course of the next few weeks. So that TCR championship has kicked off with quite a a positive note and it's been quite a positive note on the Australian motorsport landscape with uh, such a high quality meeting for ARG. Good news of course is that we've got the 24 cars and drivers that have been announced with Gary Jacobson the final one and of course he's in the second of the techno cars joining uh, Fabian Coulthard. Gary of course has been in the uh, full-time series for a number of years now. Uh, last with Matt Stone last year, and of course Matt Stone decided to run the two were lads who were sharing a car last year. Um, they'll be uh, full-time in the series. It's been challenging, I think, for everyone is border closures and what will happen next. We've even seen the state of Western Australia have some dramas, which... Uh, is rocking the foundation over there. But in all seriousness, uh, good news is that uh, Andre Heimgardner, who we spoke to a few weeks ago on the show, is now along with the New Zealand Grand Prix winner, Shane Van Gisbergen, able to travel back to Australia. And it seems that they'll be able to do that without having to isolate. And also they'll be able to partake in the... uh, tests which are coming up and some great news for uh, fans who are able to go to Queensland Raceway and also to Winton. Don't know if you can get to them on the, uh, well, Queensland Raceway on the 12th and Winton on the 16th, but there will be uh, fans allowed to go into the public areas, not the paddock, but public areas at both those circuits. And, uh, of course, then the first round, the opening round of the championship at Bathurst, and fans are going to be able to view from the top or the bottom of the mountain and will not be restricted to their zones as they were at the 1000 last year. Uh, They can even bring their own chairs to the event, but there is still social distancing requirements in where and when they can place their chairs down. And uh, importantly for the teams who will hopefully have all their new liveries and and 
merchandise available. Merchandise Alley is going to be open. So uh, it will be a lot different to the experience that people had at the Bathurst 1000 for the um, Mount Panorama 500 in just, well, three weeks' time. More news on the race engineer front. There's an ongoing need for race engineers. As we know, uh, there's been an enormous number of moves in that direction with Couchy and McDougall and uh, Chippy and you know, multiple, multiple moves in the, in the championship as far as race engineers go, which is all terrific that those uh, two test days are occurring, particularly so for the fans being able to get an early glimpse and uh, catch up with uh, while I might not be able to visit the paddock, I think he was, he was saying. A couple of good, uh, interesting interviews, I hope, that uh, people will... Uh, Find them that way from my time down in Tasmania. I'm catching up with, uh, I know you'll hear them over the coming weeks, but the first one that I'd like to uh, sit sit back and listen to is Garth Wigston, someone I've known for over 25 years, a wonderful man and uh, multifaceted in terms of uh, he's the Wigston Lures man. Built up a company and sold it in recent years, uh, well known in fishing circles around the world. He still exports to 23 countries and quite an amazing success for a small uh, Tasmanian venture. Um, and, uh, of course, he was a series steward. He was the chief steward back in the 90s. Came from doing the two-litre series, came across to uh, V8s as they became uh, V8 supercars and subsequently supercars. A uh, wonderful man, and I uh, look forward to that chat, and I uh, hope you all look forward to listening to it. The other one that uh, was... Uh, a bit of a surprise because I'm sure that you would have been taken aback when uh, Jess Dane turns up in the world of ARG and PCR. Quite extraordinary that she was looking for even more ventures. She's a very busy woman, of course, with Triple Eight and the company that her father founded in this country, along with a couple of other Europeans. And um, she, of course, has uh, a job with Channel 7 and uh, ARG doing the commentary for TCR, doing pit lane interviews, as well as S5000s and maybe some Trans Am and the TCM. Two race meetings uh, in Tasmania, back-to-back at uh, Simmons Plains and Baskerville. Non-championship at Baskerville, but some exhibition runs by the S5000s, as well as a couple of races for the Trans Am, for the the marvellous Baskerville 1000 or 10,000, I should say, and uh, one by Aaron Seaton, Great drive, just over Owen Kelly and Brett Holdsworth in third. And then the TCM was pretty dominated by Aaron Cameron. I think you would have uh, seen that sort of result. Pretty uh, terrific racing they were putting on in TCR, I can tell you. And, of course, the previous weekend, Jordan Cox was the dominant one in TCR. So some terrific little track. They really are something that wonderful for spectators because they can see most of the track, particularly at Baskerville where you can sitting in your car as they've been here since 1958. They're just a great time had down there in Tasmania. Yeah, everyone was talking about how the amphitheatre of the track and then the, the layout and nature was so positive and racy for everyone to be part of. Indeed. It's an amazing little track, Baskerville. It's the longest running, uh, continuous running racetrack in Australia. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, first used in 1958. And um, while it won't be able to host the 5000s, I'm pretty sure that the uh, PCR will be running there next year. And I think Gary Rogers and his son Barry are very keen to do it in a similar format to what was used this year. But next year it would be 
back-to-back uh, championship races with uh, ARG. I'm sure very keen to take on that sort of adventure. But and they, of course, have got Philip Island coming up in a few weeks' time. So again, uh, it's a re- tremendous track track for the uh, drivers to tackle and. Lots of really interesting times down there in Tasmania. I'll let you get on with listening to uh, Garth Wixon now and enjoy listening to the history of his time in supercars and other categories he's been involved in. Garth, um, delighted to have joined you yesterday. The photograph uh, on the site so people can see a winning skipper at work. Exactly, that was yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Five in a row, that's uh, an accomplishment. Yeah, five. Uh, handicap wins, I must admit, because I think... The handicap has probably caught up with us now for next week. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, with a crew of an average age of 75. Well, that's quite something. Yeah, it's really something, that's for sure, yeah. yeah. And we noticed the party boats, so we enjoy ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we noticed after the race that there were many people coming by for samples of the, of the pair on board. Yeah. Um, Garth, of course, uh, I met in his role as a steward, chief steward in supercars, in fact, in a time when they're known as V8s. But we first, before we start talking on that, I wanted you to recount some of your history in touring cars because I first read your name on the side of an L34. Tell us about where you got to and started and into and all those sort of things. Well, I started off in 1960, actually, with a home-built device commonly known here as a JMW class, and it was a little bit like a go-kart, except it had a leaf spring front and rear. And it had, was powered by a mighty powerful 150cc Vespa <laughs> uh, <Bisper> motorcycle engine <laughs> running on uh, 16 to 1 on, and fuelled by uh, methanol and castor oil. Oh. And boy, it smelled fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. And that was my starting point, so I ran that for a couple of years. Used to cart it out to both Baskerville and Simmons in the back of my uh, Falcon station wagon. That's how small it was. Oh. And uh, then got the bug for something a little bit better, so... Happened to find an FX Holden in a, a motor repairer's yard, his personal car, uh, and talked him into selling it. And bought that, took it home, said to my wife, oh, I've just bought a race car. Hey. <laughs> and uh, that started a bit of a career in tin tops, I suppose, and ran that for a couple of years quite successfully. Competed against Alan Ling in an ex-Gagan car uh, for quite a few years. So he and I had some great tussles, and that was a lot of fun. Um, and from there, progress to uh, a Lotus Cortina, owned by a local Ford dealer here. Actually, uh, Robin Peer, you may recall, yeah. uh, ran for Don Elliott in that, in the Mustang, and uh, we had some reasonable tussles there. That we couldn't keep up with the horsepower of the stank, naturally, but it was still a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And that lasted for a couple of years, ran that at Longford as well. Did you run traditional Lotus Cortina colours? Yeah, absolutely. Can't, you can't change that. No. <laughs> uh, white with a green stripe. Uh, yeah. And the little lotus badge on as well. And uh, walked into Peter's showroom one morning and he said, uh, I've just sold a lotus cortina. I said, what? He said, that's the end of our lotus cortina days. I said, oh, it's a bit of a shame. Oh, he said, that's okay. He said, I've only sold the body. I've kept the engine. I said, that's a pretty good start. I said, well, it's a bit of a shame. It's been a great period of time. Two years of running around in a lotus cortina. That's great. Thanks, Pert. I oh, said, uh, see that little orange Escort, um, Lotus Escort sitting on the showroom floor there? I said, yep. Yeah. He said, that's the next race car. I said, you've got to be joking. <laughs> <laughs> so I took, took it home, uh, put a couple of miles on it, and then tipped it upside down and seam welded the whole body, the, the old Oxy, the Settler set, yep. put that all together, 
and took it to his body works and had some massive fairing done on the rear of the car for some decent sized rubber. And we sourced a lot of good go-quick gear from Charlie Ivy in England with uh, very lightweight extension housings and uh, yeah. gearbox housings and bits yeah. and pieces of that. And that was almost a Camaro and a uh, Mustang killer here because uh, I could lead both of them off the grid for about two laps until <laughs> the old twin cam ran out of stone. Shorter um, races especially. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> if there were two laps, I was great. <laughs> Anymore, a bit of a problem. But uh, that was a really enjoyable time and... Uh, then uh, Pete decided to pull out of uh, motorsport. At that stage, I was uh, president of the Hobart Sport and Car Club here in basketball. And we got to the stage of needing to do a pretty major uh, bit of repair work to the surface of the track. And we embarked on a fairly strong fundraising uh, expedition, uh, part of which was the Basketball 10,000, which you may have heard of. Yep. We raised enough money to be able to do something about it and uh, caught some tenders and uh, got involved with one company named Roadways, uh, managing director was Ian Harrington, and uh, uh, Ian and I shared a lot of fun times over the process of their rebuilding of the circuit and resurfacing, and shedding a little bit on the insides of corners and a little bit on the outsides of corners and so on to get a better process and profile there. And uh, Ian one day said, well, he said, this motor racing, I've got a Monaro, what should I buy? And being a bit of a Ford fanatic, I said, well, maybe we should look at L34. <laughs> oh, he said, OK. So Ian wandered out the next morning and ordered an L34 from Melbourne, and that fronted up on the train uh, into Hobart. And uh, my local uh, mechanic, Dennis Goodsell, he uh, did a few bits of tweaks and so on and so forth and that, and we ran that here in uh, Simmons. And Ian said, oh, we should get on the national scene or something like this and be really serious about it. I said, well, OK, it sounds pretty good too, being that. So that commenced the process with Gown Hindoff. And the car went to their workshop uh, and ran out of their workshop for, what, seven or eight years. Uh, it's quite was, a period, yeah. Yeah, it was quite a period indeed, that's for sure. But I was probably rather fortunate of being in the right place in the right time under the right circumstances with the right people. Yeah. Just one of those things that kind of happened on the way through. Uh, so uh, that did, of course, to Simmons Tinted Bathurst, uh, with, driving with Bruce Hondo for a start, then Wayne Negus, then Charlie O'Brien. And in fact, we had two cars in the team one year, Alan Grice and Colin Bonder in one. Did you have a, a um, connection with Harry Firth and H HDT at that stage? Or? Yeah, Harry was sitting around with uh, Norm and... Uh, Co for quite a few years in the background a little bit, and he right. did source some bits and pieces. Because, you know, the, the names you mentioned are all blokes who had been in an HDT. No, that's right, yeah. 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 But uh, oh, Harry was quite helpful, and a few of the bits and pieces became available, a bit like yeah. lightweight rear panel doors and lightweight very <laughs> thin steel bonnet and boot and doors and things like that. Oh, those heavy ones are no good, you know, no, you want to get some of those. Of course, very legal, of course, yeah. it was in those days. <laughs> So Harry was with us for a little while as well. Then uh, from Charlie, we uh, Ian introduced his son to motor racing as well, Steve Harrington. And Steve and I drove together for the last race they had, which was in the 83. Okay. And that's when I finished fourth. So that was the end of my career there. And I had my own business to contend with, uh, Tassie Devil Fishing Lures. So that, that which had been going how long in 83? Uh, I started that in uh, 19, 
79. Okay. That's when Tasty Dibbles were born. Now, you, you told me yesterday about how um, your brother was the fishing man in the family. And my brother and my dad were the fishing people in the family. They were absolute gurus at it. Uh, I was the mechanical and hands-on bloke that did the rest of it. And uh, they did the, the proving of the device for catching fish, which was a pretty way to go about the whole thing. <laughs> um, and they'd be your test and development crew. That's right. Yeah. We chose the name Tasmanian Devil over a beer one night with a friend of my dad's from Melbourne. We were looking for a name of it and didn't know what to call it. And this guy said, well, have you thought of Tasmanian Devil? Oh, sounds pretty good. So we immediately registered Tasmanian Devil and uh, well, we flogged it in quite a few countries around the world, 32 countries in total, to be honest. So it was quite a good export device until we got a nice little window post envelope from a company called... Uh, um, um, my memory's playing up on me now. Um, Warner Brothers um, advising us they owned the rights and registration of the name Tasmanian Devil Worldwide. Whoops, we've got a problem here. So our patent attorneys on both sides got together and had a bit of a powwow about it all and figured that it wasn't really affecting either company. So they agreed to us continuing with the Tasmanian Devil in the fishing industry under Clause 28, National Trading. And so, so kind of an American company to be uh, yeah. benevolent enough to... And what's, what's more, no money changed hands, which was the incredible part about it all. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so we went along with the Tasmania Devil deal. I know it's a bit away from motor racing, but... Yeah, uh, no, no, no. an interesting side of things. Then, uh, oh, two or three years later, another little window face ended up, ended up on the desk from Warner Time, uh, where they combined their businesses there. Yeah. And they were having a problem selling their product in uh, Denmark. And I'd done a bit of a scout around and found out that Warner Brothers hadn't really uh, done anything about going ahead with registration in uh, Denmark. So I put pen to paper and <laughs> did so. So they came pleading, uh, we've got a problem with our soft toys in Denmark. <laughs> we can't operate. Oh, well, you blokes were pretty good to us, you know, three or four years ago. Can we do a El Repito situation? Just, you know, a couple of documents tied together and put a signature thing and away we went, which we did. You'd never do that in a pink fit these days. Yes, no, but this, this sounds like a man who's a steward. This sounds like a man who can who can mediate and yeah. moderate and get to a yeah. right outcome. Something like that. Yeah. So I had to spend much more time with my business, so I said to Ian, I'm sorry, but this has been a great period of time and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. I just can't afford the time to go motor racing anymore. I've got to look after my own back door. Okay. Who, who won that uh, 83 race? I'm sorry, my history's not that good at remembering those sort of things. I think it might have been another Brock win, I think. Right, yeah. okay. Yeah, you yeah. heard of Ted Brock? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 But, uh, I know, we'd knocked on the door a few times, and uh, I was sorry if this didn't, didn't happen, and that didn't happen, we would have yeah, won. Would have, could have, yeah. The classic yeah. was when Charlie O'Brien pressed the uh, engine cut-off button instead of the press-to-talk radio switch. <laughs> Going up mountain straight, the car just stopped. I don't a, know why it just stopped. Lost about seven minutes. Yeah. And of course, we would have won if that hadn't happened. But anyway, that's yeah. one of those things that you can go on with. But uh, yeah, from then on, I became involved in a little bit more stewarding, which I've been doing for many, many years, locally here for a start. Then on the national scene with uh, rally cars. Then I was picked up by two little uh, cohorts. Who approached you about that? Um, Cams, just cams. Cams did that, right? Yeah, yeah. It was an internal situation. Uh, so I did that for a few years, and then uh, Cams dragged me over to Melbourne and said, "We've got another job for you now." So okay, what's that? Supercars? You've got to be joking. 
So I did supercars for quite a period of time. Well, of course, they were the engines of V8s. <laughs> they, they, they really were, yeah. Yeah. But I think the advantage of being in a stewarding role and having had some experience in actually driving a car, which a lot of stewards in Australia hadn't done, um, it gave a little bit more uh, reality to the whole situation. Yeah. Uh, and that worked out fairly well. Yeah. It didn't stop a few blues with a few people here <laughs> and there and things like that, but part of the course, that happens. Um, and of course, uh, you were involved only in, in your way of having to make a decision or, or be part of the decision um, in some of the more infamous uh, tales. Uh, you were probably there during the uh, burnouts in the car park at um, Hidden Valley at... Uh... Don't know anything about it. <laughs> All right. Um, what I remember quite vividly was uh, when uh, Craig Lowndes in Adelaide in 99, the inaugural event, and he had the misfortune to uh, touch the back of Donny Osborne's colour scan falcon and put him in the fence mm. and um, was sent to the back of the grid. That would have been a... Uh, yeah, there were some strange things happened at times, but uh, some of them I won't repeat because they remain a little bit... <laughs> Locked in a box. Much of history, yes. <laughs> I don't think they'll ever see the light of day, and probably they shouldn't either. No. But uh, I was involved in the... Uh, a dubious situation with BMW when they had their first and second finish at Bathurst and I had to inform them that they'd been disqualified. That didn't go down terribly well. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, this uh, Garth's referring there to when uh, Paul Morris and Craig Baird um, may have crossed the line first, but mm. unfortunately Craig had driven too long. Exactly, he'd exceeded their driving time by quite a... Uh, Chunk, quite, yeah. Quite an amount, even though I've warned them beforehand that they're getting close to a better to a driver change, which you shouldn't do, but... Uh, in fairness to the situation, I thought it was wise to advise them beforehand anyway. Yeah. But uh, that advice wasn't accepted. But in those days, uh, first and second on the television was more important than first and second in the paper the next day. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know if Paul Morris and Craig Beard still think that, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and of course the maximum penalty was only $30,000 so, those days, so um, I find that amount as well. So, yeah. But uh, that was one of those, a few others of as I said, I won't mention that we're a bit more fun than anything else, but so. yeah. it's an yeah. interesting time. You make lots of friends and you make lots of enemies, but that's okay. Yeah. But People notice you're there. Yeah, you do. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. um, so you kept on being a steward um, well into my time in the paddock. Um, and, uh, of course, things changed dramatically over the uh, birth of the internet and Absolutely. information being so much freer and... And then the introduction of cameras and things of that nature. Well, I tried cameras to get cameras into supercars very early in the piece, having seen them used in the two litre series. Uh, so, uh, supercars should follow the lead of the two litre cars and have a, a camera <laughs> on hand. And eventually, eventually, you did get a camera in the car, but the only problem was it had to be processed and the chip yeah. taken out and so yeah. on. So, uh, afterwards, it wasn't a direct feed of any kind. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, that was it. But another thing I did, did get involved with too was um, I, I designed a timing situation. I don't know whether you were Yes, I, I know of this. The old briefcase? Yes, yes, I know of this. Yeah. <laughs> because in my early time, the only way you were timing race cars was with the two stopwatches on a board. Yeah. The old mechanical stopwatch, the sweep hand. So I came up with the idea of using electronic timing for it. And I think most of the toy cars teams I supplied with a timing situation called TAS time. Yes. And uh, you could time that to 10 cars at once and uh, to keep an eye on the opposition as well as your own time. 
and then we uh, also fiddled around with the radio as well, being able to trigger a, a signal from the pits to the car that would also show the driver the completed time of the lap that he just completed as he went across the start finish line, which was the first time that had ever happened too. So, but I had to fiddle with a few ideas and things over my time. So, Garth, I think if the time had been right, you would have been in the castle. Oh, because he's, he's an innovator. <laughs> yeah, but some interesting things happen and been part of the interesting process at times, I guess, as well. But uh, it's all been a great lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I think being in the right place at the right time in the right situation has got a lot to do with it. Yeah. That, uh, I don't know whether ability has much to do with it. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, as, as our listeners on Inside Supercars know, I'm not a believer in good luck. I'm no. a believer in good management. <laughs> yeah. well, that's very true. And you that's get true. yourself in a place and a time, and yeah. I'm constantly reminding young drivers not to go around thinking that they're just, you know, I won't say expression, but, you know, no. lucky to have got there. No, it's because... Got to earn, earn you. Yeah. You score somewhere on the line, you really do, that's for sure. One of the delightful things I've been on this trip, I've been able to catch up with Steve Chopping, who of course was on the boat last night, but um, in his role now as a mentor, mm. which I found quite delightful, and I <laughs> joked with Paul Taylor, who sends his regards to you, by the way. Good, yeah. Um, uh, reminded um, with a conversation with Paul about how this new body called Motorsport Australia is almost unrelated to the one called CAMS mm, mm. Um, because they're proactive. They're going out now and seeking and training and identifying the people who should be in positions of... I mean, a long time coming, but it's a great thing to see. It really is. Yeah. Sure. The only downside is MA Motorsport Australia, which is a bit like Motorsport Australia, so <laughs> it's a bit confusing, I guess, but you know, it's a side issue completely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so Steve took over from when you were in the job. Yes, I handed the baton to Steve. That's yeah. Right. yeah. Did did was there much of a handover process involved in that? Oh, Steve worked with me for a couple of years before I retired from the scene. Okay. So we both knew each other. Oh, Steve and I go back to oh, the sixties actually. Yes. When his dad was racing as well. So yeah, yeah. Brian is it? Brian chopping. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Steve and I have been mates for a long, long time. So yeah, okay. natural. And of course, he did wonderfully well in in going on to the international stage in a no, steel exceptionally well. That's yeah. right. Formula One. He's still working at the moment, so that's very yeah. one attribute to his ability to be able to do so. But being a lawyer certainly helps, so that's all part and parcel of the whole process. Apparently, his car's having a hard time because it keeps on trying to go to the airport and it won't, he, he doesn't want to go there yet. Turn left instead of right, that's right. I had much delight in Steve some years back now when we were still racing in New Zealand at the Hamilton track, and um, Steve had officiated at Albert Park on a very young driver then. Um, early this uh, century, um, who had been doing some very silly things in a road car, won Lewis Hamilton, and then was uh, doing sillier things on the track. Mm. And he was asked to fly up to Malaysia the following race to be part of the stewards panel to adjudicate on Lewis's penalty from these uh, moments. And in fact, there was a team manager from McLaren called Dave Ryan, mm. who was a long-time um, uh, McLaren person, and he, um, he was virtually thrown under the bus by Ron Dennis yeah. um, and sacrificed um, rather than Lewis uh, getting the penalties. Um, but I found that fascinating, walking around Hamilton track, listening to the story about Hamilton the driver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fascinating indeed. Um, Tim Jenkins, obviously, someone you, uh, you had long association with in working in, in the role. Yeah, um, Tim and I had a pretty good relationship between each other. We both saw most things the same way. Uh, but 
Um, I was thinking of another story, but I won't repeat that one either. No. <laughs> but no, Tim was a great guy to work with, actually. What, His what, knowledge and ability was absolutely supreme. Now, you know, he obviously had a couple of careers before he got to the job here as a, a race director in our category. Yeah, our he, program he was category. steering open wheelers for quite a while, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then built a, a massive 400 car racing car business called Tiger. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. But what are the things that he brings to the job as race director in supercars that you think make him so good at that job? Well, I think the background of having been there and done that, that's probably one of the most important things of the whole lot. Yep. And you, there's so much of a learning process in actually being part of that situation, uh, not looking at it from the outside and just giving you ideas, but having been part of it in, internally as well. Yeah. That's it's just worth big, big quids. Yeah. It really is. Mm, yeah. Okay. Um, and, of course, we've been fortunate enough to see... Uh, that um, when Charlie Whiting uh, sadly died, that um, a young man who you would have had lots to do with, very much so, um, mm. Michael Massey, mm. is now the race director for Formula One worldwide. Yeah. Mm. Um, delightful young man. I've known him since they wouldn't trust him with a tire gauge, yeah. um, <laughs> and uh, but he has grown in the job, and and he equally is. Uh, well, he was involved in two later cars as well. That's right. And then yeah. went to supercars, and uh, he was assistant with. Uh, with me for quite a while, and uh, but very knowledgeable young guy, guy and uh, he would certainly listen to anybody and sort the sheep out from the goats and take the right direction. It was great to see him get the job, actually. Yeah. He's yeah. done very, very well. I, I imagine that's actually a satisfying thing for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Right. No, and, and despite his lineage and parentage of <laughs> Italian background, he <laughs> remains calm. Totally, totally. That's, that's, that's the service, yeah. Yeah. I've never seen him actually get ruffled. He's probably bristled in fraction, but he's never ever ruffled. Yeah, yeah, and he's, sure. he's had some champions stand up to him and say, oh, you are wrong. And Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great, great to see somebody as young as that hopping into the role and doing it so well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, very sad when uh, Whiting suddenly just uh, passed away in Melbourne. Well, Charlie was just so much a part of the scene here. Yeah. It's just, just a total shame, it really was. Yeah, he, uh, well, when I started with him watching Formula One back yeah. in the 60s, he wasn't quite there, but he certainly came along in the late 60s. Yeah, he certainly did. And yes. part of Eccleston's crew. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, um, So you you don't have any current involvement in motorsport? Yeah, I was still a board member of Motorsport Tasmania that okay. owned Basketball and Simmons. Yep. Um, Who are some of the other board members there, just so we know their names? Uh, Peter Killick. Yep. Know, Peter. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and... Oh, stop and think. No, John Pauling, he's part of the scene as well. Um, but a lot of the few of the old rogues at Motorsport in Tasmania, I guess. And we were responsible for the Basketball Foundation, which was uh, designed to get some funds going for basketball in the most recent uh, rehash of the circuit. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to getting out there this weekend and mm, seeing it. Mm. Um, one of the delights that hearing about and um, only really understanding fully was the fact that both uh, Simmons Brains and Basketball are now under control of Motorsport Tasmania. Most important move. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. It's twigged for many, many years and talked about for many, many years, but never actually happened. Uh, but now that it has, it's uh, seen great success for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate enough back in the early 70s to go to the Yule Estate mm. um, for afternoon tea. Mm. I was working with Colin Hines at the time. But um, are there any members of the Yule family involved in motorsport? Not these days, no. No, no. okay. They had a, a very long time of involvement anyway with both John and Gavin. Uh, but uh, both having part of the scene these days, so yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah. 
Yeah. And of course, you should just mention here at this stage that John Yule, um, and the estate is known as Simmons Plains, isn't it? That's the area. Correct, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, a farming area, very rich farming area. Um, John Yule was the very first customer of Jack uh, Brabham and Ron Toronac back in the early 60s. He would have been. He car. bought that's the right. car and, yeah. and brought it back to Tasmania. Yeah. Where am I going to run this thing? Well, we better build a track, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> As everyone does have that and, idea. And the timing was spot on because that was about the demise of Longford anyway, so. Yeah, Will you go up to the Motorama um, coming up at, at Longford? I went to the first one they had and uh, had a run in a uh, friend's little uh, Cortina, just for the heck of it, just part way down the main street. But I didn't go to the, the last couple. Uh, I thought, well, you've been there once, you've done that, you've seen that. It's, uh, I might wander along and see a few old faces shining out of the woodwork here and there. Yeah. 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 Um, we were fortunate enough, uh, Deborah and I, to meet the um, new owners, the new publicans. Um, uh, oh, that was the pub. Therese and um, Darren. And um, they most definitely are committed to trying to make as much a success of it as they can. And motorsports history you know, is important to us. There's so much history involved in the whole thing, and Longford was such a big, big thing. Yeah. It was rather rather sad when Senior Preservation kicked the uh, tin out of everything and said, no, you can't put up hoarding signs yeah. uh, for any longer than two days a year. Of course, that uh, poo-hooed the idea of anyone becoming involved as a sponsor. Uh, had that not happened, I think we might have even still seen Longford exist. Yeah. yeah. It was rather sad, but fantastic circuit to drive on. You would have been there through those glory years of the early 60s yeah, and well, Tasman days. It's interesting when the races stopped to allow a train get across the roadway. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Did that actually happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, look, I was quite uh, struck when I saw Timmy Mayer's stone there, which uh, I would understand must have been moved from where it actually died, where mm, the stone mm, had been put. Mm. That's right. Mm. I, I've been and seen where Jim Clark died and, and yeah. where Bert Hawthorne, okay. mm. Um, mm. who was a New Zealand driver driving a, uh, a particular New Zealand-built car. But um, it's uh, quite an extraordinary thing to have had this circuit that was um, so much part of a town. It was just It was. Mm. I recall running my FX Holden there. And, uh, it had a few animal carburetors on it, probably one of the first of the grey motors to have animals on it. Rushed down the hill past the water tower, and suddenly I can't stop the car. And I just bought myself a, a four-point harness that was made, <laughs> made by a certain doctor in Sydney, and I suddenly realised you can't reach the key. <laughs> and ended up just lapping the water of the creek under the viaduct. <laughs> and got towed out of there and went across paddock back to the pits again, and found the most fantastic, great mushrooms, <laughs> huge, great things. Filled the boot up with that. <laughs> They weren't magic, were they? No, they, no. no, they probably could have been, but they weren't. Yeah. So we had a fantastic mushroom food uh, that night in the pits. So, uh, <laughs> you do some funny things. Motorsport was different then. Yeah, it of course definitely it was. Yeah. was. Definitely but was. in those days, everybody loaned everybody else bits and pieces to keep yeah. the act uh, going and all part and parcel of the whole thing. So, yeah, those are some of the fun times. Do you get around to watching anything on TV of the supercars? Don't watch a lot of it, but just. Enough of it to keep in touch with what's going on and what's yeah, happening. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of the series as such? I think probably it's uh, grown itself. Yeah. Uh, it's gone past that point. Uh, hopefully the new two-litre series may turn around and TCR. replace that. TCR, yeah. With uh, 
much more competitive racing and uh, much more fun. And, and the, the biggest thing is having an international, having a you know, dozen different it brands. It ties in with a, a total international competition, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. So well, you, when you were competing, and I was just writing about, of course, back in the 90s, yeah. um, the car, car companies were dominated by Ford and Holden in this country, and 50% of car sales were in those big six-cylinder cars. They were, that's right. Mm. Now they disappeared totally almost gone completely that's right yeah, yeah. Yeah. it is that. fantastic to the tcr and of course as you well know that um you know cream always rises to the top regardless mm -hmm. um you know to see somebody like a lee holsworth and a Chas Moster jump from a rear wheel drive v8 into a four cylinder front wheel drive and lo and behold they're still up the front it sorts them out doesn't it it does <laughs> indeed it does indeed um so, will you be making Baskerville this weekend to have a look? Yes, I'll go have a bit of a sticky back, my little girl. That's just okay. part of the scene there. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm looking forward to enormously seeing uh, that. Have you been to Baskerville before? Mm -hmm. I have, but not when it was an, a racetrack. It went, right, not an event. I was there just to look at the track. Oh, okay. And didn't yeah. see cars on track. Probably one of the most interesting circuits in Australia, actually. And, mm -hmm. and I think it's, it has the record, actually, of the longest continuously running racetrack in Australia. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, nothing's ever stopped it, it's almost kept going. Simmons, and from my memories of Baskerville, which was in the 70s, I saw it last, um, my memory um, is of two tracks that are very similar to New Zealand racetracks. Very similar in many ways, that's very, very similar indeed, that's for yeah. sure. Baskerville's about a mile and a quarter, Simmons is a mile and a half, uh, but um, still two totally different circuits. Yeah. But in my mind, I think um, Bathurst is number one, yeah. Tarmac in Australia, uh, Phillip Island number two, and basketball number three. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, it's a real driver's challenge, basketball. And a man... When you, when you get the blind corners and blind rises, which way does it go? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Inside Supercars, Garth. I'm Good to catch up again, Tony. Indeed. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm very indebted to you to uh, giving us a, a ride in your Soul Quest yacht. And the winning song. A right. winning song. Sorry. <laughs> very much so. um, and um, we will go and enjoy some more episodes of a, a Gourmet Chef Afloat because uh, that is where you made your television debut as a ship's captain. <laughs> yeah, that was a fantastic experience. Circumnavigating Tasmania with three chefs on board. But, uh, as long as you smiled at the camera at the right time and said the food was fantastic, that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as the food was fantastic, that's the important part. Uh, Yes, some was. <laughs> some was, right. Yeah, well, we certainly will enjoy more episodes no, of that. So, it was uh, a great fun event, a fun event, it really was. Supposedly a sailing trip around Tasmania, but the only problem is they didn't tell the wind to blow. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a sensational trip, and uh, it probably did a lot for the state of Tasmania as far as publicity is concerned, because the scenery was absolutely stunning. No doubt about that, as you've probably said. As indeed. Yeah. Well, thank you uh, for taking us and showing you're a man still with your winds full of sail, or sails full of wind. Something, probably both. <laughs> well, it's certainly uh, an interesting time in Tasmania and good to hear the history of uh, Garth Wixon. Jessica Dane, on the other hand, is far more uh, current and her involvement in the sport is quite large and diverse. She's still involved with Motorsport Australia and the women in motorsport, that there's very much a push for uh, Motorsport Australia and Jessica, something Jessica's been involved in for a number of years. Let's have a listen to Jessica telling us of her involvement there and how she's uh, doing within the spectrum of Triple Eight 
an ARG. Thank you very much. Now, Jessica is in a new role I'd never seen her in before. She, of course, has a role in the Triple Eight organisation, being not only daughter of, but also the commercial operations manager. And as such, you are now a Channel 7 Sport ARG (laughs) racing group representative in pit lane with a microphone in hand. (laughs) Welcome to this motorsport. Thank you. Yeah, it's a different. Um, actually, it's not that different. To be fair, I did, I did a journalism degree, and out of that, I was um, thought for a while that I could get into um, sports broadcasting in particular, um, and then. Thankfully, I realised that I was better suited to behind the camera in a production role. So I was involved in um, a couple of TV channels. Um, I got down over in the UK. This is got down to the last um, final, like top top five or something. I think it was for the Sky Sports for a Sky Sports position in the UK. Um, but I was actually already living in Australia at the time, so it's not completely foreign to me. But certainly, I I decided maybe about ten years ago that. I shouldn't try and pick up a microphone and then (laughs) this opportunity came around and I find myself with a microphone in hand again. Well, I'm sure there's a bunch of people, including Mark Beretta and Brad Hodge and (laughs) Abby Jelmy, who are quite glad you're there because they do know that you know something about this (laughs) e-business. Yeah, try try to. deep in Triple Eight for many years Mm -hmm. um, as part of your life, probably a a quarter or something like that. Goodness, yeah, probably probably more. I mean, Triple Eight started in the UK back in uh, 96. So, yeah, I mean, until my father RD moved over to Australia it was um, going racing was a big big part of my life for a, for a long time and drifted away from it as a teenager um, but then uh, attended my first supercars race when I was 17 and absolutely fell in love with it where was that Bahrain Oh, yeah, right. okay. it wasn't. It, it was an up and down weekend. Both cars DNF to race one, thanks to Paul Morris. <laughs> and, uh, but then uh, Craig went on to win the final race. So it was. Uh, um, we had both sides of the coin that weekend. Okay, so you've got very deep um, feet in the pie of motorsport, um, and but you needed some more. <laughs> yeah, it feels that way. Um, it's, I mean, motorsport is you know, for for. Anybody who's truly engrossed in it, it's not just it's not just a passion, it's not just a job. It, it's a real way of life, way of life, and, um, and for me, it's I just love going racing. I absolutely love it, and especially over the last two years when I've been going racing less. Partly last year because of COVID, and the year before that because I'm also doing a law degree. Um, all of those things meant that I was going to to the racetrack less. So if there's an opportunity to go racing, then I just try and grab it with both hands. And this is a new role and. And, um, different different side of um, pit lane that I'm used to, but I'm having a great time doing it. Okay, so a lot of the people you're involved with have been around motorsport as well, and you'd know some of them mm. from where you compete currently with your yep. family team, so to speak. Um, how did this initiate? How did this thing happen? <laughs> I actually got a call, it must have been last goodness June or July I think it was um, 2020 from Gary Rogers um, who said oh we're we're looking for another female to add to our presenter list and um, and 
we're thinking of you know who who would be good who knows about motorsport and I thought oh I know the perfect person she's she not only knows motorsport very well but she's got a great accent and uh, that was me <laughs> so I said um, yes if, if everybody's happy with that then I'd love to do it okay all right well that's that's certainly terrific from the point of view of Channel 7 from the point of view of uh, ARG and the competitors in these various categories um as far as fitting in with the rest of your life, I mean, obviously there are different weekends, and they're not on V8 supercar weekends. Do you have to do an enormous amount to change what you're doing to come and do this job? Um, I'm probably going to find that out as the year goes on, and I think COVID particularly has taught us to have contingency plans for the contingency plans. Um, so it hasn't, I think, um, probably the biggest change that I've had to make so far is the fact that I'm going to have to do finish my degree over a longer period of time than I planned. I mean, it, in an ideal world, I would have been finished in November this year, but um, because of a few extra commitments I've taken on, I'm probably going to now finish in February 22. So that's probably the only thing that's really changed for the time being, but um, that's not to say that I won't have to be more flexible here and there with certain other things this year. Okay. Many of the listeners of Inside Motorsport already know you've been involved for some years in the first of all the efforts by CAMS to involve women far more in motorsport, um, and now Motorsport Australia as it's known. Yep. You're still involved in that? Yes, so although the Australian Women in Motorsport Commission was disbanded at the end of last year in line with the restructure that saw, I think, only three commissions um, retained within Motorsport Australia, um, I'll still be working with Motorsport Australia um, in some capacity around female involvement. And as well as that, I'm still the Australian delegate to the FIA Women in Motorsport Commission and an ambassador for Girls on Track. So still very much involved in all of that. And that, to be honest, is still one of my um, is still one of my key driving factors and although females in motorsport is, is extremely important to me the other side of it of course is just in general um encouraging younger generations to get in, in motor, into motorsport i think as triple eight we're in a very unique position that we can we have the facilities and the capability to expose younger generations to motorsport at the highest level in australia and so we need to use that position to make sure that we're looking after those future generations and introducing them to to motorsport and showing them that it's a really good way of growing stem industries in australia and of course you're joining pit lane uh, at these rounds by Molly Taylor, who's mm, also yep. heavily involved at the top end of women in motorsport. Yeah, good friend of mine. And a further one is, of course, your engineer, Romy. I can't remember yeah. Romy's surname. Romy Mayer. Mayer, yeah. right. Um, who was originally German and mm-hmm. came out here. She worked in the DTM. Yep. And she's been an engineer at Triple Eight for at least three years. Uh, she joined in 2015. Oh, okay. Yeah, so long okay. stint now, but she's actually on maternity leave because she had her first baby oh. back in November. Congratulations yeah, so congratulations to her. Yes, okay. Did she bring her husband with her or did she? No, her partner's actually Brazilian. She met him over here. Wow. Um, yeah, two expats raising a, raising an Australian baby on the beach. Well, fantastic. <laughs> That's great to hear. Okay, so um, you're back to the... Uh, do you come to Baskerville as well or will you be just... 
no, not coming to Baskerville. That one's not on um, on Channel Seven, but um, yeah, it should be a really good weekend of racing. I mean, Tasmania is so fortunate to have yep. two fantastic weekends of motorsport down here, and it also makes it worthwhile for the competitors who can and do both events. And your first kickoff for twenty twenty one motorsport in Australia, really. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic way to kick it off and uh, get everyone involved. Okay. And so you then rush back to the mainland, back up to Queensland. Um, to Banyo and uh, you're just preparing then for the first round at Bathurst. Test date where you are. Yeah. Is it you've got a lot to do or you the existing cars, there's no new cars being built? There is one new car being built for Jamie, so we'll yep. be shaking that down very soon. Uh, we've got the test day ahead, which is due to be on the 12th. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening to the uh, Tasmanian travels of Tony Whitlock and Craig, it's uh, something to look forward to very much so heading to Bathurst. I don't, do you remember the last time we went for sprint races? It was in the 90s, I'm pretty sure, when uh, Supercars, as it was, or Avesco, had the idea that we'll have sprint races at these venues as well as Enduros. But it's been a long time since we've been for anything less than a thousand case to Bathurst for that Supercar fair, wasn't it? I think... We didn't go back there for sprint races because uh, they just didn't hold up to what Bathurst really is, and that is an endurance race. Indeed. I, I think it was also the cost still that's terrific, but we'll be there, and I'm looking forward to it enormously. But we'll have many more interviews coming from our Tasmanian travels in the coming weeks before we head to a live race meeting again. So thanks, Ed, for Inside Supercars. Tony Whitlock and Craig Bell for another week. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited.